Tuesday, March 30th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Good to see you. Hey, you too, Chris. Thanks for having me on. We've got news from PayPal. We have a project in the works over at Facebook. But I want to start again with Archegos Capital because now we are starting to get more details in terms of how much leverage this family office was using. Some of these trades were levered up reportedly 20 to 1. Mm. Uh, Shares of Credit Suisse are down again today as its losses are piling up. And I want to get to the banks in a minute, but when you look at this whole story and all of the different pieces, what stands out to you? Well, Chris, reminds me in some ways what happened with long-term capital management back in 1998 with the unwinding of of that disaster. Um, Highly levered hedge fund run by exceptionally smart people, uh, apparently smart people, at least smart on paper people. Um, And that was far more levered than this one. This, um, uh, the the family office here at Archegos apparently levered somewhere in the eight to one overall. But like you said, some trades up to 20 is one, 20 to one, which means um, for every $100 in in equity they had, they had $800 in investment. So banks were willing to basically lend them $700 to to lever up their their investments. So massive amounts of leverage, and that has ripple effects as we're seeing clearly now. So it reminds me a little bit of that, but it's different because this is a family family office, which sounds sounds so innocuous. It sounds so sounds, quaint. Just sounds like some small person or maybe a couple people in an office managing some family money that's been around for a long time. Well, this is Bill Wang associated with Tiger Management before that, Julian Robertson's famed firm. He was one of the Tiger Cubs and had um, one of the most successful uh, hedge funds investing in Asian companies and then ended up having to pay a $44 million fee to regulators for um, insider trading uh, allegations in uh, on Chinese stocks and was essentially just pretty much going out of the game and then converted um, Tiger Asia into a um, family office called Archegos and got back into the game and then obviously paid a lot of fees to to create this um, these uh, this the, the firm and these trades with these banks, including these total return um, swaps, which are highly levered um, investments that basically allows uh, the, 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 um, the, the family office to pay a large fees to the banks and the banks essentially lend them money by owning those assets and then will pay uh, out the, um, the gains or losses on the future performance of whatever financial asset, like stocks, for example. And they just were heavily levered against these, these bets, and these bets started moving against them. And all of a sudden, you start seeing the house of cards fall apart in a levered environment. Warren Buffett uh, and Charlie Munger raved about this um, more than 10 years ago in their 2002 annual report. They talked about the risk of specifically total return swap investments, but derivatives in general and how you just don't know who's on the other side of the counterparty trade. The counterparties don't know who else is counterparties. Apparently, uh, the the Archegos family office had a lot of uh, counterparties, so a lot of these risks, a lot of these swaps associated with different banks, so they didn't necessarily know, and then you just start to see this unwinding in these massive block trades in these stocks as the banks tried to raise capital to cover their losses, and, and it, they, they couldn't get out of them fast enough, and so Nomura and Credit Suisse are starting to see some of those losses pile up, as you mentioned. So, it's just another evidence of, we just don't learn anything in this 
this business sometimes, right? This, this is, this is, we've seen the unwinding of these derivative trades and these, the leverage in the system, very dangerous at times when things move against you uh, in those firms. And um, we saw it, uh, you know, with the short squeezes in GameStop in some way and uh, AMC Networks with their, with the Reddit crowd. And now we're seeing it with so-called called very experienced investors and very well known and, and capitalized banks. I will say that I do take a small amount of comfort in being reminded uh, that, you know, for, for anyone who says, oh, Wall Street is rigged against individual investors and they're all in it together. You look at this story with Archegos Capital and you see these quotes from, you know, the, the different bank and one hand didn't know what the other was doing. They're like the, just the amount that yeah. professionals on Wall Street were completely in the dark about what was happening with this money uh, actually makes me feel slightly better. I mean, yes, there's there's um, compliance uh, questions that all of these banks from Morgan Stanley, Deutsche, Goldman all have arranged these big block trades on um, how to get out of this, some of these stocks and obviously no more and Credit Suisse, the ones that are probably on the on the biggest hook for some of these. Um, and then, of course, you have the regulatory compliance uh, question, which is um, the disclosure for family offices. And that's a big question that the regulators are going to have to look at and start to wonder if they need to change those laws, because that's that's clearly something that these that you don't really see show up from a disclosure perspective and an individual investor like us, like maybe that would have uh, impacted um, an investment in discovery or Viacom. Um, so, but just the the dramatic change in share price and those those two stocks over the last two weeks has been really dramatic and driven driven so much by what is happening, if not exclusively, what is happening um, by these so called experienced institutional um, uh, banks and investors. It's going to be really interesting to see where this story goes from here. Not necessarily with the cleaning up of this mess, but the aftermath. I am curious to see if. Uh, there becomes a drumbeat for increased disclosures uh, on a regular basis from these family offices. I'm also interested to see what side of this the big banks come down on, because the fact of the matter is, there's somewhere between five and ten thousand family office funds around the world. They manage six trillion dollars collectively. This is a market that's growing. And there are a lot of fat fees to be had uh, for the banking sector, and uh, there's no question that they're going to go after it. Yeah, completely. And a lot of hedge funds convert into family offices. Tiger Asia did, or they they open family offices because they don't have to deal with the regulatory. They don't want to deal with other investors. They've made lots of money, uh, and they create these family offices. But they're still very large institutions designed to. To manage the money of these families and and ostensibly hopefully for philanthropic good causes but you can see the dangers if you basically run your family office as a hedge fund but you don't have disclosure requirements and you don't have necessarily the um the the, the scrutiny that you might have that hedge funds might have or certainly other investment vehicles may have so um to go to my opening statement though chris it seems like we don't learn a lot maybe some things will change i hope they do uh, disclosures need to be more transparent. The Motley Fool, we've been talking about transparency f pretty much for the past 25 years and opening up avenues and, and insights and information to more and more individual investors. And when you see something like this and those stocks for those investors who may have owned Viacom, maybe just bought it th a month ago, 
um, for whatever reason, or, or some of the other stocks that are impacted by this, Baidu, for example, a couple other ones, and then to see this kind of happen, and granted, short term, but that's, that's, um, that's a, if there was more information, maybe it may have changed an investing decision. So I think disclosure is always um, uh, generally um, uh, better to shine the light on, on that than not. And so I think something will hopefully change, but sometimes we just don't learn our lessons. PayPal is announcing that U.S. customers can use their cryptocurrency holdings to pay at millions of online merchants globally. Customers who hold Bitcoin and other cryptos in their PayPal digital wallets will now be able to convert their holdings into fiat currencies at checkouts to make purchases. Is this a win for PayPal? I mean, it seems logical. I'm just wondering if you're a PayPal shareholder, how excited should you be about what this means for either PayPal growing its business or increasing its bottom line? Well, I think if you're a PayPal shareholder, it's pretty nice. Certainly, if you're a PayPal account holder and they have, um, by last count, almost 400 million, 380 million accounts, 377 million accounts at the end of the year, so massive amounts of accounts, um, I think this is really um First of all, very interesting, and I think it's actually very uh, a good thing for commerce in general. PayPal is a leader in the space, obviously. Um, they are one of the the the, the um, early uh, adopters of being able to invest in in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies through your PayPal account. So I was very excited by that. Um, I'm excited about this. I don't own Bitcoin. I don't own any cryptocurrencies. But just knowing that, again, I have that flexibility to do that, it will be very interesting to see how this impacts because PayPal is going to be handling the, the conversions back and forth. So it's not like if you're one of the 29 merchants, you have to accept necessarily Bitcoin payments. PayPal will handle that on their end, so it'll be interesting to see how much how much transactions and trading goes on in that and, and converting back and forth and how that conversion works. Um, but from the adoption of cryptocurrencies as an actual workable currency, not just a financial asset, and we talked a lot about this during our Bitcoin day um, recently on Motley Fool Live, but focusing on um increasing the likelihood that this will be more and more adopted as a way to transact. This is a very good piece of news for, for that perspective. And I think it's a good news for PayPal shareholders as well. Do you expect others to follow? I mean, you know, part, part of this story is just PayPal's size. I mean, this is, yeah. you know, for, in terms of validation, um, having a company the size of PayPal involved in something like this um, is certainly... Uh, one more validator for yeah. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I think it was like 15 billion in transactions went across PayPal's um, platform last year, so it's massive. I think it's. I think it is. A, um, like a, they were early into um, trying to serve um, individual uh, clients overall. Um, very from the very beginning, even when they were part of you know eBay. Um, so I think I think you will see others follow. I think this is the way that you see this adoption. Um, you start to see the likes of Tesla, even though I don't really expect it to have a massive impact this year when they said they will start accepting payments in in Bitcoin for Teslas uh, to some extent. And I think you see the leadership from someone like 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 PayPal um, and their team and just the success they've had in 
how they offer their solutions. And this is yet another example of what they're trying to do to meet their, their clients on their terms. And I imagine you'll start to see other, other firms that deal in the payment space start to think about different ways we can use the conversion of fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies and make them much more interchangeable, changeable to actually make them a real exchange of goods and to use in, in day-to-day transactions, which is, which is really what you want to see for a currency. Now, whether ultimately cryptocurrencies go that way or they still stay much more in the asset class remains to be seen, but this is a step in that direction. Facebook has confirmed it's working on developing an Instagram app for kids under the age of 13. This would, in theory, enable kids to keep up with family and friends in a safe and ad-free environment. Andy, uh, part of me uh, looks at this story and thinks, I don't have to worry about this because my, <laughs> my kids are beyond the age of 13. Um, what, what's your blush you know, reaction to this story? Well, I'm on the flip side of that, Chris, because both my kids, both my girls are younger than 13 and still have a couple years until they even get to that point. So um, Instagram has rules that you can't join unless you're, unless you're over 13. So they already are serving kids in some ways. Um, teen teenagers and and um, uh, so they have that part of the market, but this was something they I think uh, felt was just a, an, a, an attractive demographic if it is done correctly. And of course, that's the big if, Chris, because we know there is a lot of challenges with opening up this kind of social media to all 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 people in general. And certainly, Instagram has has faced um, um, criticisms and concerns, as has Facebook, as has Twitter, just about um, uh, uh, cyberbullying, just some of the creating an atmosphere of positivity and health. Um, and you certainly have to do that when you are talking about Instagram. And um, same thing with with YouTube Kids and YouTube and that platform as well. So, if they can get this right, and they can do it in a very healthy positive atmosphere my kids love to take um pictures with their um with with uh, phones or iphones dock up the photos send them to friends it's very it's very um right now just seems very innocent and and very um, active a way for them to be able to connect if, if facebook can do this with instagram for the young kids in a way that is healthy and positive rights can see it as, as a good sign obviously there's lots of connections with um, same thing with YouTube kids. When you are working on a, on a you encourage uh, younger people to adopt your platform and use it, and then you're more likely to continue to use it and and migrate as you get older and use more. In this case, use Instagram. Um, outside of kids, use for for Alphabet's case, use YouTube, um, the the regular um, platform, not just YouTube Kids, and you're more likely to 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 be uh, involved in that platform. Um, uh, there will be criticisms that you're trying to addict kids earlier to social media and to that those platforms, and it's just a, a money grab by by Facebook, and I can understand those. So it really depends on how they execute this, and obviously it has to be 100 percent purely foolproof from from any kind of inappropriate behavior um, for it to work and then that's a big question because that has not always worked out in lots of other cases even though um, facebook has has tried yeah i i think we're all used to and i think we all understand um let me use an example that has nothing to do with facebook look at the iphone uh, the very first iphone you, you couldn't even access the internet with it and then you know 
each yeah. new iteration of the iPhone gets better, more bells and whistles, you know, gets better and better. Um, but there, you know, there are, there are kinks that need to be worked out along the way. And it's understandable. I think you're absolutely right that this is something, to the extent that something needs to be perfect right out of the box, this is one of those things that if Facebook gets this right, there will be rewards further down the line mm-hmm. by making what should be a first experience with social media a positive one. That pays dividends for Facebook if they get it right out of the box. If they're, if this is 95% perfect, I don't know that that cuts it. I, like I, I, I just see, you know, I see both versions of it. Yeah. There's the version where everything works out, and there's the version where it's like, ah, it's almost perfect, but there are still enough problems that it leads to, you know, tabloid stories or or the business version of tabloid stories. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a single point of failure in there um, that they 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 can't they can't afford, and and we know uh, Facebook's um, track record on this. Again, it's so massive, and there's three billion global users. Instagram itself probably has more than a billion. Um, their record, um, and just even even from the very early philosophical days of 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 move fast and break things. Well, you, you this can't be broken out of the gate. This has to be as locked in and clear and and hack proof. And all of those precautions, because I can guarantee you, I will not, just like it is with, with a company like Roblox, we do, I will not let my kids on that platform unless I am 100% sure that they are, they are protected and it is safe and it is friendly and it is positive. Uh, because, you know, one sniff of negativity comes across. I know it's very hard to protect your kids all the time, but that's going to kill that platform and will kill the user base of it and the adoption of it, which is really what they want to want to go after. And not to even talk about how they might monetize it with advertising, which is a whole other question, Chris, and probably don't even have time today to talk about Andy Cross, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.